Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Mark Fraley Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. It is is a sunny but cold day here in Nashville as we prepare for Christmas. As always, thanks to Ron Trammell and the Cats Tribute Band for our intro music. And also a shout out to Mike Berkeley at Grow Wild Nursery for his role in making today's interview possible. Back in 1962, a scientist, Rachel Carson, published the book, A Silent Spring. This book brought to the world's attention the fact that we were wiping out wildlife because of the toxic effects of the pesticide DDT. This book was revolutionary at the time and is credited with being a factor in the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, and other environmental regulatory schemes of the 1970s. In 2007, our guest today, Doug Talamay, published a book entitled Bringing Nature Home. Like Carson, Talamay has sounded a warning. His warning is that we are threatened with the loss of native birds and other wildlife because of the degradation of habitat caused by the growing dominance of non-native plants in our landscapes. This is because alien plants and trees do not contribute to the food web as hosts for the native bugs relied upon by native birds for food. In 2019, he published the New York York Times best-selling book, Nature's Best Hope, in which he proposed the idea of creating homegrown national parks by reshaping our backyards. More recently, he has published the book, The Nature of Oaks, which continues his message with particular emphasis on these very important keystone trees. It was a great privilege to spend some time with Dr. Talamay today. I sure hope that our conversation will provide some food for thought for all of my listeners who are backyard conservationists. And we will get started right after this brief message. Hi, this is Heather Lose, Editor-in-Chief of the Tennessee Conservationist Magazine. Every year, we publish six beautiful issues packed full of timely and informative stories about Tennessee culture, people, and places. You can stay informed about your world and all the great things happening in your Tennessee state parks. It's easy to subscribe. Just go to our website at tnconservationist.org. Thank you. Professor Doug Talamay, welcome to the Mark Fraley podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, it's it's a thrill to have you. Actually, an honor. I, I have been a fan of yours for many years and um, I've been, uh, I'm just thrilled that, that uh, Providence brought us together to talk. Um, so, uh, you know, as we get started, I know you've written uh, three or four books. Um, I think I have them all. Uh, just have read the, your book about oaks. And I want to talk about that in some, in, in some detail today, but, but generally about you know, your, your books are are on the same sort of theme about the importance of invasive, uh, of eliminating invasive plants and planting native plants and, and to support natural ecosystems. Before we get into that, though, before uh, I'd like to 
ask my guests uh, at the at the beginning or the outset of our interviews about their personal uh, journey. Uh, and you obviously are a professor in, of entomology, uh, but you're involved in, in conservation biology, uh, field biology. Uh, how how was it that, that you got inspired to choose that as a profession? Well, my story uh, really does start when I was born, <laughs> because okay. I was born loving nature, uh, and you know that's just the way it was. I have a brother and a sister, and it's not that they don't like nature, but they were not born with the obsession that I was. So, you know, growing up, I had had uh, a typical response, which was I was a little boy, so I liked turtles and I liked snakes, and I collected them and kept them as pets, and then I had to catch the snake food and feed them every day, and so it was a good it was a good experience in in husbandry you know how do you keep nature alive uh, but i knew nothing about insects absolutely nothing um we spent a lot of time at a, a lake in north jersey and when we took hikes the horse flies and deer flies would really pester us so my oh, experience no. with insects was getting bitten in the back of the neck by a, a deer fly <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when i went to college i i was a biology major and it was junior year that they actually offered a course in entomology taught by Dr. Bugby. Oh, boy. So, yeah. If you're going <laughs> to you're going to take entomology. You take it from Dr. Bugby. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and he really turned me on to it. I, I loved him as a professor anyway. Uh, he communicated in a way that was just natural for me. So I took every course that he offered. But that was the most interesting uh, course that I had. Uh, so I ended up going to graduate school in entomology. Um, now I didn't. I had that one course. I really knew nothing about it. I remember going to Rutgers and and uh, saying, "Well, gee, I want to want to go to grad school in entomology." And the chair of the department said, "Well, what kinds of entomology are you interested in?" And I said, "What kinds are there?" Right, right. <laughs> he sent me down the hall real fast. But so I was I was very green. But um, my interest continued. I mean, insects are just fascinating things. Uh, uh, so I, I, you know, I got a master's and realized, well, you're not going to get a good job with a master's in entomology. You really need a PhD. I realized that about the same time my professor said, you should get a PhD. And I said, nah, all right. That wasn't the plan, though. I mean, I was the first, first Ptolemy to ever even go to grad school. My parents didn't go to college. So, you know, getting a PhD just was not part of our, our thinking ever. Um so it was a scary thing, but uh, I, I ended up doing that. And then then they started raising the bar about what it takes to actually get a job. Not only do you need a PhD, you need a postdoc. Meantime, I was married. Uh, you know, I had a child. What I really needed was a job. <laughs> but that was the road to getting a job. So I got a postdoc at the University of Iowa. Then there was this job offer at University of Delaware. I had applied to lots of jobs before that and had never even gotten an interview because I didn't have that post back yet. But uh, I did get an interview at Delaware. I got the interview. I got the job. Uh, and that is the job that I still have. It's been 41 years. So I've had one job interview in my life. But um, Bless your heart. That's just terrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's inspirational. And, and you grew up there in the east, uh, in, the in the northeastern sector there. I did. I grew yeah. up in, in uh, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. Uh, and then uh, went to graduate school, University of Maryland and Rutgers. And now I live in Southeast Pennsylvania. I live in Pennsylvania. I drive through Maryland to get to Delaware to go to work. So it's all right there in one yep. little corner. Yep. That's a pretty corner of the world. Absolutely. 
Well, it's, you know, we were, I was just, uh, just traveled up to DC for a weekend uh, to attend an event up there. And, uh, you know, there it's, 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 it's a very developed place. And then you can, you can very quickly get into the countryside, but um, uh, I have to say though, that my, my observation of DC is always that uh, the, the residents of the district um, uh, are, are blessed in that they have the National Park Service as their, their, their local provider of parks and recreation because uh, their parks are gorgeous. Um, but um, putting that aside, it's, it's, it's kind of a rough urban environment up there for sure. Traffic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Traffic. Well, Doug, I want to talk, you know, it's been some years ago that I first read your book, Bringing Nature Home. Uh, and I have to say that um, in, in my world of purchasing books, I've probably purchased more copies of that than any book in, in, in my life. Uh, I have made a practice of buying that book and giving it to, to uh, policymakers um, and people that are interested in conservation, or I think that they should be, uh, <laughs> you know, in, 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 you know, this is, yeah, this is me trying to, to have influence. So, uh, in that book, you, you, um, you really bring a revolutionary concept to the table, uh, from my standpoint, um, those of us in parks, uh, or have, who have managed parks have been aware of the problem of invasive plants for, for many years. I, I came to Tennessee and learned about kudzu. Mm. Um, and we have one state park in Tennessee that has about four or 5,000 acres of, of kudzu smothering the, the forest there. Sure. Um, this is Natchez Trace State Park out in West Tennessee, mm. uh, planted by the, the park service or the forest service or the ag department or some federal agency to, yeah. to control erosion there. Right. So there we were no sort of plants that can control erosion. It's well, that's not that. So we, we were aware that, you know, there was the smothering of nature going on, but the connection between uh, the smothering of the, the natural uh, plants and the, the food web that you talk about, uh, that was, that was a, new, a new concept for us and how it was interfering with the habitat for native birds and, and native animals. Could you talk about that about that concept generally? Sure. I mean, you say I brought a revolutionary concept uh, to the book. There's actually nothing revolutionary about it. This was uh, this is plant insect interaction theory that we learned about in graduate school in 19, 1975, 76, 77. It was a big thing back then. And it simply said, look, most of the insects that eat plants are host plant specialists. They can only eat the plants for which they have the adaptations that allow them to eat that plant. Plants defend themselves. They don't want to be eaten. So they load their tissues with nasty tasting chemicals and, and sometimes physical defenses. And for an insect to be able to eat a particular plant, it has to adapt to those defenses. And I always use the monarch butterfly as an example because it is a specialist on a toxic plant, on milkweed. Milkweed produces uh, compounds called cardiac glycosides. If we were to eat a bunch of milkweeds, uh, it would stop our hearts. That's what cardiac glycosides do. They also have milk in you know, the milky latex sap. If you break open a milkweed leaf, all this white goo comes out. Well, when that's exposed to oxygen, it gels. 
And that's it. That's a defense. If, if a caterpillar gets that on its mouth parts, it glues the mouth parts shut and then they starve to death. So it's very effective defense. Yet the monarch has adapted to both the latex sap and the cardiac glycosides, and that has allowed it to specialize on that plant. The key is, though, once it's specialized on that plant, it's locked into eating milkweed. So it didn't specialize on any other plant, which means if we take milkweeds out of our environment, you lose the monarch. It's not going to start eating the hostas in your, your yard or the multiflora rows that invade your neighborhood or anything else. And that is true for 90% of the insects that are out there. They're host plant specialists. So that was well known. What we never talked about in grad school was invasive plants. Um, we didn't talk about landscaping. We didn't talk much about plants at all. It was really how insects responded to their, their host plants. So when I, uh, when Cindy and I, my wife moved into our property here in, in uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania, it was totally invaded with Asian plants. Again, multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and bush honeysuckle and autumn olive and on and on and on. And the first thing I noticed is uh, the insects aren't eating these plants. Well, of course they're not. They didn't adapt to them. They can't, they're not going to, our North American insects are not going to adapt to a plant from Asia. So no surprise there. What was the surprise to me is that nobody was talking about this. So that's what uh, led me into this line of, of research, realizing that um, there's a big long list of why invasive plants are, are uh, not a good idea, but wrecking the food web wasn't on that list. So I said, well, gee, maybe this is research opportunity. Uh, and it was because I wrote some grants and I got them, which proved to me that my peers weren't thinking about this either. But it, you know, again, it was just taking the old information we learned and applying it to a modern problem. And that is the problem of invasion biology. And it's not just invasive species. We landscape our yards with plants from someplace else. So, a, a, you know, a ginkgo, for example, crepe myrtle, these are not invasive plants. They don't move around. They are alien plants, however. Yeah. yeah, or you're not allowed to use that word. That shows bias. Oh, oh I see, I see. <laughs> I learn all these things. They're still in our landscapes. There are over millions of acres of our landscape. We've got 135 million acres of residential landscapes loaded with plants from other countries that are not servicing the food web that we need to have in our landscapes. Okay, you, that, so, you know, that past, last sentence just sums it up just, just perfectly. Yeah, yeah. In the past, we've, we've, um, we've always had this relationship it's an adversarial relationship with, with nature. Humans are here, nature someplace else. We like to visit it, but stay over there. We're not gonna live with you. There's, you cannot coexist. But that means every time the human population expands, which is every minute, we exclude nature to, to someplace else. And there is no someplace else anymore. And the reason that's an issue is because it is natural systems, it is functional ecosystems that provide the life support for us. For everything, but for humans too. This is this is a selfish response here. It's not just that we like the the you know the fuzzy things that walk around, because some people don't like them. You know that's that's just a preference. It's that they're absolutely essential. Nature is not optional. We we have to have it because it provides the life support that we humans need. And every time we increase the human population, we need more life support, not less. So that's the conflict that I've been addressing for the last 20 years now, I'm trying to get people to realize we have to start to landscape in a way that supports the food webs that support the ecosystems that we all depend on. Right. Doug, you, you have a, a your, I guess not your next book, but a next book was 
Nature's Best Hope. Uh, and, and in that book, you, you talk about, you know, sort of the macro or the meta look at, at the landscape and, um, you know, how much land is assigned to state and local parks and national parks and um, how much is devoted to lawn and how much is devoted to agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you, you come to the conclusion that there's simply not enough parks out there to accomplish what we need to accomplish vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, protecting, uh, protecting nature. Well, we are, we are now in the sixth great extinction event the planet has ever experienced. And, and this, this uh, you know, biodiversity forum up in Montreal this week has emphasized that. Uh, we are losing species hand over fist. We've got 45% decline of insects around the world. We've lost 3 billion species or individuals, 3 billion breeding birds in North America. That's a third of our North American bird population already gone. Uh, and there's the UN is predicting we're going to lose a million species to extinction in the next 20 years. So um, that wouldn't be happening if our parks and preserves were doing their job, if they were big enough and numerous enough to do their job. So the, the simple conclusion from that is that we now have to start to practice conservation outside of parks and preserves. And if we do that, those parks and preserves will not be isolated little dots on a map. They'll be connected. And if they're connected, I mean, the, the success of, of any any um, conservation effort, the, the viability, the sustainability of any population depends on its size. And tiny populations are highly vulnerable to local extinction because all populations fluctuate. And if you're tiny and you fluctuate for natural reasons, you can hit zero and then you blink out of your little habitat patch. So the goal is to make them bigger and you make them bigger by connecting them. And then if a storm comes or a disease or something, it doesn't wipe out everything. Uh, and that, you know, so, you know, it's not that we need more research to figure out what to do. We know what to do. Um, right. It's a matter of doing it. And that's, that's why I run around and give talks. That's why I'm talking to you today is to try to get people to realize that they and the property they own is the future of conservation. It's you know, everybody's responsibility. I'm totally with you. Let, let me engage you in, in this, in, in this uh, topic. Um, there, the knowledge of uh, the, the typical citizen about what is a native plant and what is uh, not a native plant um, is, 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 very, is quite limited. Um, I had the experience of taking a, one of our candidates for Nashville mayor on a hike in, in a local park several years ago. And as we went on the hike, um, I was pointing out to him that we had uh, winter creeper on the floor of the forest and uh, privet hedge growing where native plants should be growing and uh, trying to get his interest in, you know, spending some money on the rehabilitation of this degraded park. Um, and his, his idea was that all these things are green, therefore they must be a good, they must be good. Right. Uh, right. And I think, I think that um, uh, the typical citizen looking out the window at their yard uh, doesn't have the, the background or the, the knowledge to evaluate what, they're, what they've got. Can you well, talk about that right. a little bit? Yeah, yeah um, I talk about the ecological IQ of, of the American public on a scale of one to 10, it's 
down there around one. <laughs> and it's not their fault. We didn't teach anybody, particularly our generation. We didn't learn about this in school. Um, what we respond to is marketing. And the horticultural trade has marketed uh, pretty plants, which are 80% uh, of them are non-native, aggressively our entire lives. So, uh, so that's what we respond to. If you don't have a giant lawn with camellias and ginkgos, you're not, you're not a good citizen. And if your lawn isn't perfect, you're a communist. I mean, we've heard this through the years. <laughs> that, that, that happened in the 50s, believe they, me. They do invoke the communism label. Yeah. They, do, they do that. <laughs> so that's what we respond to. Nobody was talking about, well, you don't have any native, native plants. So you're not supporting caterpillars that support your birds. We don't want anything to eat our plants. We want them to be be totally static. And if you look at one of your leaves and there's no holes in it, it's not doing its job. It's just a decoration. Uh, so no, we weren't trained and, and people don't recognize. And that's why when they do drive down the road, they do see green, but they don't realize that that um, even in a, in a preserve, over 30% of the vegetation that's there is, is from someplace else, typically Asia. <clears throat> So, um, so that means they're not going to be uh, motivated to solve a problem. They don't even see what the problem is. Yeah, in in Tennessee, the uh, our our parks manager type people are are becoming aware of of this issue, and and we are spending money and resources to eradicate the invasives for sure uh, in our state and local parks. Um, I, I do get concerned about the the. Um, uh, the land that they have dedicated to to turf grass. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly appreciate a ball field and a soccer field as much as anybody, but uh, we have large expanses of turf grass uh, there for decorative purposes, and uh, they cost money, and they're not contributing to the ecosystem. No, they're detracting from it. Right. I always talk about four things that every landscape needs to be accomplishing today if we're going to reach this sustainable relationship with nature. And, and you know, what's the alternative? An unsustainable relationship with nature? It, it really isn't an alternative. So every landscape has to support pollinators. It's got to support a food web. In other words, other, other living things. It's got to sequester carbon and it's got to manage the watershed in which it, it lays. And lawn doesn't do any of those things. As a matter of fact, lawn actively destroys the local watershed. It's certainly not supporting any pollinators. It's not supporting the food web. And it's the worst plant choice for carbon sequestration that we could come up with. And we've got 44 million acres of it. That's an area bigger than New England. And we have it because it's a status symbol or it's a default landscape. Right. It's, it's the easiest thing. Right. Yeah. Well, it's the easiest thing to create, but it's right. not that easy to maintain. Right. You've got to mow it the rest of your life. You know? I got it. Yep, exactly. Let me ask you this now, and this may be, uh, I don't mean to be too controversial, but you know, when, when landowners um, and developers seek advice about, about uh, what to plant on their landscape, they go to landscape architects. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know, I've never, I, I don't participate in the, in the the forums that landscape architects have amongst themselves. I don't know what they talk about in terms of the ethics of landscape architecture. Um, but, um, I mean, should there be an ethics uh, issue in, in landscape architecture? 
Oh, I think so, but <clears throat> but it's a new concept. Landscape architects in particular are very different from landscape designers. Landscape designers really do know their plants and they choose the plants that would give them a particular look. Landscape architects are trained in hardscape. Where does the water go? Uh, you know, what what will this, this building do? And it wasn't until, geez, maybe 20 years ago that they that they even included plants in their education. It didn't matter what plants you use. We're just con we're constructing this landscape um, for other other purposes. You know, thinking about the hardscape. Where does the path go and the driveway and so on? That is changing. That is changing. Um, I have been invited by by Landscape Architect Group, the national meeting, three or four times. Um, I wondered about that. Tell us. Yeah. Tell us. Uh, they're not they're not opposed to this. They just didn't know it wasn't part of their curriculum. Uh, and, you know, landscape designers are coming around too, primarily, well, for a couple of reasons. People are disturbed at, at the, you know, this biodiversity crisis. And when they start to realize that, that anyone who controls a landscape is, can be part of the problem or part of the solution, uh, they respond. You know, they're, they're not evil people. They, they, they don't want to wreck the world, but they didn't realize that we had these problems. They didn't realize the extent to which we had these problems. And they didn't realize that they could be an important part of the solution. So today, the demand for uh, native plants far outstrips the supply. So nurserymen are responding to that. It's a business opportunity. Um, years ago, I talked to a, a group of nurserymen in, at Penn State. <clears throat> and I remember a guy in the front row, he crossed his arms and he started mumbling. He said, you're trying to put us out of business. And I didn't think about a reply till I was driving home. But back then, there were 129 million homes in the U.S. And if everybody re-landscaped, it would not put nurserymen out of business. <laughs> I love that. What I am trying to do is change the inventory. And they don't really care about that. They want to sell plants that will sell. They're afraid if they only offer native plants, they won't sell. And I can appreciate that. You don't want to carry inventory. Nobody's going to buy. But the whole, you know, the whole culture is changing. People, people get it now more and more that uh, that they really can bring nature to their yards. Um, we have to battle the media because nature is vilified all the time. You know, if, if anything lives in your yard, it's going to kill you one way or another, and you better not go outside. Got to battle that. Um, but, but we're succeeding. The culture is changing. Um, I, you know, uh, and I can, I can base it on the interest in what I talk about. I, I get four, five, six. The other day, I got seven talk requests in one day. Goodness. I can't do all those, but that shows interest. People want to hear that there's something they can actually do to help fix this problem. And when they do it, they see the result. Let's, let's um, dig just a little bit deeper into the uh, industry, the horticultural industry, um, and, and ask this question that some of my... Um, Plant, plant nerdier friends might, might, might be interested in hearing you talk about. Um, there, there is this difference between species level type native plants and, and um, uh, the cultiv cultivar type native plants and their effectiveness in supporting the food web and, and uh, nature as you would desire it to be supported. Um, I know that you know we even have um, copyrights and patents on certain certain of these plants that certain have you know where there's an economic benefit to the person that's created that that plant. 
talk a little bit about that. Is, is there is there a need to to be planting species level uh, plants, or can we go with certain of these cultivars, or do we know? Uh, yeah, it's closer to the uh, we don't know end of it. Very okay. little research has been done on that. Okay. We did a study, uh, and Annie White up at the University of Vermont has done done a study. Mount Cuba Center in Hocassin, Delaware is doing a lot of evaluations. Uh, but the short answer is whether or not a cultivar, and people call them nativars, right. is the ecological equivalent of the straight species, depends on what the genetic change was that created the cultivar. Because there's lots of types of cultivars, and many of them are found as natural variants in nature. Got you. Yeah, they were Somebody brings out. them in, puts yeah. a name on them. Right. You know, October uh, or uh, Acer rubrum October glory red maple is is a genotype that somebody found in the woods, and it was particularly red, and they they cloned it. So uh, <clears throat> nature created that. That's obviously not going to be a, a problem. But we've gone way beyond that. We we love uh, purple leaves and 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 uh but if we take a green leaf and make it red or purple um that's loading the leaf with anthocyanins which are feeding deterrents so right away you've taken uh a native plant that did support the food web through its its leaf material and made it inedible so that's one i would avoid mm -hmm. but if you take a, a tall plant you make it shorter and there's a lot of cultivars that do that uh, our studies show there's no effect on, on the insects got you Insects are responding to the chemistry of the leaves or the, the volatiles and physical nature of the flowers. So if you change them in a way that the insect doesn't care about, they don't care Very about cool. it. Yeah. Um, it is a little trickier with flowers because, you know, we've got about 4,000 species of native bees and over a third of them are, we call them specialists. They can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. Um, <clears throat> And they find those particular plants in very specialized ways. So if we fool with the flowers, if we change their color, which always is going to change the UV spectrum, and that's really how insects are finding the flowers, through the UV coloration. If we change the nectar load, if we change the nutrition uh, of the, the pollen, if we make it a double flower and eliminate nectar and pollen altogether, of course, that's going to impact uh, all the pollinators. So many of our, our cultivar traits focus on flowers to make them bigger and showier. Uh, and more often than not, this is what the data suggests, but it's not well researched. More often than not, it does discourage uh, pollinators. There are examples like um, Phlox paniculata genna. Is a, uh, it was a natural variant found in Georgia, I believe, and they put a name on it. It has twice the flowers as the straight species. And yes, it supports twice the pollinators. So oh, wow. you know, it's a cultivar that that uh, is going in the other direction. So, so um, you got to do your research when you're looking at at what you want to put in your in your landscape. Yeah, but I but I would, I'll admit, most of the time nobody knows. Nobody has looked right. at the particular right. cultivar you're talking about. You can buy it and see for yourself. Now, how often are things coming to it, <clears throat> coming to those flowers? There are, I don't know how many cultivars of echinacea there are. Some are really hot. The pollinators love it. Others will just sit there. Not a single one will go to it. Right. So if you want to do all your, your research yourself, um, that will work. But one thing uh, that's not so great about cultivars is that they typically are propagated clonally, which means they have zero genetic variability. Uh, and that is not that's not the way to go in today's world. Never, never was the way to go because that's that's how adaptation happens. 
And with climate change and the extreme weather variability we're throwing at our plants, they need as much genetic variability as possible to be able to adapt to these very, very rapid changes. So from that perspective, um, and I wish we could we could make these desirable traits and maintain genetic variability, but so far we're not doing that. I so I urge caution that way. Um, I would love to see nurseries carry the straight species a lot more they do than they do because right now the the general public goes there and say well i want a native plant and the only plants for sale are all cultivars so it's their only option so they buy it and, and okay um give them a give them an option see if there's a market out there there is a market out there so sure, there is. Absolutely, <laughs> the, the, there is. you know the horticulture trade is learning that but uh, as i said before the demand for for native plants uh, is is much higher than the need. So we don't have enough growers. Many of them are small mom and pop operations that don't have the ability to expand rapidly. Um, so we have to get serious about growing native plants in a commercially viable way. Uh, and it's starting to happen, but we're certainly not there yet. Fantastic. Doug, let's talk about, let's talk about trees and, and your, your, um, <clears throat> In your book about the nature of oaks, which which uh, I've picked up and recently uh, read through, uh, I can't say I've read every 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 word, but I've read every chapter. Um, you talk about no, actually this 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 uh, story comes from your book about uh, nature's best hope, but it is about trees, and you talk about traveling to Portland, Oregon. I believe with your daughter, uh, if I'm not mistaken. No, with my uh, wife. With your wife, pardon <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. And and uh, observing uh, the street trees uh, mm. in in that in that neighborhood where you were visiting, and of course Portland is is um, uh, has a great reputation and and, and well deserved reputation for being thoughtful about sustainability and those sorts of things. Uh, but you had some observations about. The street trees in Oregon and their relationship uh, to the overall environment and particularly birds there, which I thought were fascinating. Could you tell our audience about those things? Right. Now, I know why you said my daughter. We go to Portland, Oregon, because that's where the grandkids are. Uh, there, there you go. So it really was with my granddaughter. Um, and yes, we go there uh, a lot. And the first thing I noticed you know, Aldo Leopold said, if you have ecological knowledge, it's kind of a curse because you can't go anywhere without seeing problems. And the first thing I notice is, hey, none of the trees here seem to be native from the Pacific Northwest. And Portland claims it's the greenest city in the country. So there's an issue there. So when my my oldest uh, grandchild, um, Sophia, she got she was eight. <laughs> I said, well, that's old enough. Let's walk around and and measure what is native and what is what is not let's get the percentage of of nativity here in portland so she carried a clipboard and i would call out the names of the plants and she'd write it down and then later on i had to decipher what she she wrote <laughs> we did we looked i don't know what it was 1100 trees or something we walk, walked around and did it over a couple of weeks uh, and i think the figure was 92 percent of the trees in portland are from someplace else they are not native trees uh, <clears throat> and this means, is this is someone who has selected these to plant them on the you know at at the street level right right right, right. it's a bit the purposeful street. decision to plant these yeah you have yeah. to get permission from the from the city to do right. it they will right. come out and plant them and they give you a list of trees you can choose from um but 
you know, this is a Mediterranean uh, environment. So lots of things grow there. So many of the trees are actually trees from back east, uh, sweet gum and red, red oak and sycamore, uh, things that don't grow in the Pacific Northwest, but do grow back east. And some people say, well, they're native. They are not native to that ecosystem. And that means the things that use those plants are not there. We actually did compare the use of red oak in Portland with the red oak in Pennsylvania. Red oak in Pennsylvania is, is, uh, supports hundreds of species of caterpillars. You know, it's a very, very important tree in our food web. In Portland, Oregon, it's, it's nothing. Absolutely nothing is removed from those leaves. Might as well be from China. It might as well be from China right. in terms of the things that want to interact with it. Right, right. Um, now, now, in Portland, people do have bird feeders. Uh, so birds will go to the seed. And a lot of those non-native plants are making berries in the fall, a lot of crab apples and things. And the robins are there eating them. So people do see, you know, they see like particularly in the fall and the winter when the birds come in to get that seed. But breeding is important. If you don't breed, you don't have more birds. And if you rely on someplace else to, to create the populations every year, it's not going to work. We've got to be able to, to have breeding populations <clears throat> everywhere. And that's not happening very much in, in Portland because of the lack. It's really insects that drive most bird food webs. 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects. And uh, so you observed a, a, a diminution of, of uh, bird bird life in, in the in the neighborhood. It's pretty quiet there in the summertime. Mm, yeah. Yeah. They've got crows and they've got uh, scrub jays, and both of those can live on human garbage. But you know, I have to I have to say that. Um, Years ago, I worked in municipal government uh, in a city in East Tennessee, and we were always challenged with choosing uh, street trees. Uh, you know, planting planting a, a tree next to a curb, uh, next to a, a place where automobiles were going to be up and down all the way, and and uh, hot sun, uh, lots of lots of difficulty for a tree. Uh, mm -hmm. I can remember reading articles about uh, the success people were having with with uh, ginkgos as street trees simply because they could tolerate, you know, the stress of that environment. And, and that that seems to be correct. Um, but uh, they're not they're not really supporting the the, the, the local ecology as, as another tree might. Are there suggestions that you have for for street trees? I guess it um, depends on, on the locale, but. Right. One suggestion I would have is to create uh, an environment that's a little <clears throat> a little more receptive to, to trees. We don't have to create what they, we call hell strips, just this two foot uh, strip that's not paved over and then expect trees to survive. Yeah, the success of the ginkgo, ginkgo is a great city tree. Uh, and, and um, you know, there are a few others like that, but uh that has given a lot of people the impression that only trees from China can live in cities. Uh, Makes no ecological sense at all. Nobody has spent a lot of time evaluating the, the uh, ability of native trees to survive uh, inhospitable conditions. But uh, Gary Smith is a, is a, he's actually a famous landscape designer. He suggested to me that um, we should look for genotypes of our, our you know, most, most important native trees in areas that are, are really rough. <clears throat> so red maple, for example, uh, it's 
you know, it's essentially a tree of the swamp. You see that growing where there's a lot of water all the time. But if I drive through Pennsylvania, uh, the canyons where they've, they've uh, put the major roads, you can find red maples growing on the, the cliff sides with almost no topsoil, no topsoil. It's just very little soil at all. They're just growing out of the rock. That's a genotype that is surviving in a really rigorous situation. Mm-hmm. We should pull that out, put a name on it, call, call it the red maple street corner or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an example. But- right. Right. We can find of an opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but nobody's looked for them because we've had these these uh, ornamental trees that we've imported for other reasons. And they've already done the, the, the you know, over the last century, the selection to say, hey, this works, this doesn't work. But that's that's created this this um, urban legend that native trees can't survive in, in cities. And that's just not true. I can take you to countless places. I mean, look at Washington, D.C. It's loaded with with American elms. It's loaded with with uh, willow oaks. It's a city. Yeah, Nashville's had had a great deal of success with the willow oak as a street tree here, um, and and that seems to be one that they keep they keep going to. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a funny choice because it has really shallow roots and really does lift up the the hardscape and stuff. I would never yes, think. Yeah, I would. I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, you have to take. You have to have some. Um, a, a fairly good sized footprint for it, for it to, to not wreck yeah. the sidewalk and the street and the street too. Right. It's a huge tree. Right. So Doug, in your, in your work, um, you have, uh, done some, some study about the relative benefit of certain types of species in supporting the, uh, the ecosystem. And, and, uh, uh, I guess you've, you've broken that into, um, uh, woody species and herbaceous species, uh, uh, and and the, the oak tends to to top out the list uh, on the woody species side, uh, and I, I guess that's the reason that you've written written a book about the oaks. I wrote I read the book about the oaks because my wife said you should write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> You know, out of those those uh, four things I know, I mentioned that landscapes should be doing, uh, oaks are number one at three of them, uh, and not bad at the fourth one. So they have big root systems for the most part. So they're managing the watershed really well. They support more species, more life than any other tree genus in in North America. So they're really supporting the food web very well. Uh, they're they particularly the big ones. <laughs> are sequestering a lot of carbon. Not only do they build their tissues out of carbon, but they're pumping carbon into the soil. All plants do that. Uh, but again, you're going to pump more carbon in the soil if you have big roots than if you have tiny ones. Uh, they're wind pollinated. So you say, well, they're not going to help the pollinators. But it turns out a lot of spring pollinators do go to oak catkins, gather the pollen. They use it. They're just not moving it to the female flower. So they're not actually pollinating, but they are benefiting from oak pollen. So uh, those are the four things that that uh, every plant should be doing, or at least we should choose plants to do that. And the oaks do all of them. Let's talk about the food web value, because that's where they shine. I always talk about caterpillars, <clears throat> not just because I like caterpillars, but because they are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So if you don't have a lot of caterpillars in your food web, you've got a failed food web. And just one quick example, I always use the, the chickadees, Carolina chickadee, takes 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to make one nest, to get one nest to the point where they leave, where they fledge. 
And after they fledge, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars another 21 days. So you're talking about- And they don't, and they don't feed them seed from your bird feeder. They can't eat seed. Baby right. birds it, can't eat seeds. Exactly. Uh, except for the finches and the doves and the crossbills. Those are, but that's why I say 96% of them are. There's a few species that can make a milk out of seeds and feed it to their babies, but most can. They depend on invertebrates, typically insects, mostly caterpillars. So if you don't have trees that make a lot of caterpillars, you don't have breeding birds. And that's the key. Oaks support nine over 950 species of caterpillars nationwide. And there's no other tree genus that comes close to that. So I call them keystone plants. And they are the best keystone plant in 84% of the counties in which they occur. And they occur all over the United States. I know in, I know in Tennessee, we have 20 or more species that naturally occur here in Tennessee. Tennessee is a hotspot for oaks. Uh, you've got more than 20 species. Uh, and that whole southeast corner of the U.S. is where most of the oaks occur. Right. Uh, there are places in the northern Rockies and the high, high plains that don't have any oaks naturally. But... Um, Otherwise, yeah, they're they're all over the place. Doug, you have um, coined a phrase uh, called the homegrown national park, and I, you know we've talked, we spoke earlier about the need for landowners to to um, to look at their that their properties and and, um, uh, re and and evaluate what they have, take some steps to introduce the native native plants and. Um, and you've actually even have a website that, that is de dedicated to the homegrown national park. Can you talk about that and, and uh, tell folks what they need to know about getting involved with that? Yeah, it's now more than a website. It, it is a uh, nonprofit that is uh, designed to get the message that <clears throat> we all are responsible for, for conservation uh, and that it's easy to do. We want to get that message to the millions and millions and millions of people who don't have a clue about that, who don't realize that biodiversity is disappearing and don't realize that we need it. It's essential that that's a crisis. And they certainly don't realize that they can help help solve this problem with just with simple plant choices in their yard. So that's the goal of Homegrown National Park. It's free. Um, so it's, we're not competing for membership with uh, Audubon or National Wildlife Federation or Wild Ones, any of those groups. What we want to do, we've got, we call it getting on the map. We have a map of the U.S. and you register your property and the amount of area you're going to be a good steward of on your property. So I was talking about cutting the area of lawn in half. Let's say you really did that. You measure that area, you put that in the, the database and your little piece of, of uh, the piece of your county where you live is going to light up. And the overall goal here is to get the whole country to, to light up. Um, there's a lot of good conservation happening on private property, but it's not being recorded anywhere. Mm -hmm. We've got this uh, 30 by 30 initiative they're talking about in Montreal this week. We have to save 30% of the earth by 2030. Any way we can do that is great, but the, it, we're never going to make that goal without recording successful conservation on private property. And this is a mechanism to do that. Uh, so there are ecological benefits of homegrown national park. It's going to uh, boost biodiversity. And I can I can use my own property as an example. I mean, our, our, our property was mowed for hay. We put the plants back and I'm still counting the number of moss species that now make a living here, but I'm up to 1,199. Oh my. 
Um, and they're all, they're types of bird food. So we've had 60 species of, that have bird, bred on our, our property. This works is all I'm trying to say here. Um, so it's going to boost biodiversity, but we're going to put more plants in the landscape. We're going to reduce the area that's in one and that will sequester more carbon. A third of the carbon that's in the atmosphere right now causing big problems has come from us chopping down the, the, the trees and the plants all over the planet. The obvious solution is start putting them back. It's not going to solve climate uh, crisis, but it is going to help. Um, so those are those are ecological benefits. It's also going to build connectivity between existing parks and preserves. So right now you go outside of the park, it's no man's land. Nothing can live there. We want to change that so that you go outside and it's not a death sentence. You actually can live there. There are also sociological benefits to homegrown national park. And the big one is it's going to help change our culture. When we get people to recognize that they can do something on their property, even if it's just minor, putting an aster in a flower pot to help the migrating monarch, it gets them to realize uh, that they, they do have that responsibility to being a, a good earth steward. Um, it makes them part of the, the solution. It, it's, it's cultural awareness of not just the problem, but what the solutions are. The solutions are, are you and me. It's a, it's a grassroots solution to this, this global crisis. Um, what are the other sociological benefits? What's well, a lot of fun, but people, people, does, people does. can have fun and when they garden and do things like this in their yard. Yeah. They can connect with nature, which has lots of health benefits. Right. Right. Yeah. It's all, it's all positive. Right. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's fascinating to me, uh, in my life as a, as a gardener and I, I grew up with a mother who kept a garden at home and lots of of wildflowers and that sort of thing in her garden. But you know, the idea at first in gardening was to be a collector of, of weird, weird plants. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, I, the, the weirder they were, the, the more fun they were for me, mm -hmm. uh, until really I learned that that's, that wasn't helping anything <laughs> really. Right. And so, um, so there's been an evolution and I think that's happening as you observed earlier, that there's becoming more, people are becoming more aware. Um, so Doug, as we, as we, um, uh, wind this, this interview up, I wonder what's out there in the future for your research and, and your, uh, and your interest, uh, out there into the future. What are you working on these days other than doing interviews with oddballs like Fraley? <laughs> There's, there's two things we're, we're working on in my lab. A lot of what I talk about has come about because uh, several years ago, we started creating lists of um, caterpillar host plants. You know, which plants are actually making the most caterpillars, which are driving these food webs. That's when we realized that just 14% of our native plants are, are doing 90% of the work. But those are the plants we call keystone plants. And that list has become really valuable. That's what we focus on. If we're going to do a restoration, you want to make sure you've got these keystone plants. And we have lists for every county in the country. Um, very, very powerful tool. But we realized the entire planet needs lists like this. So uh, we're actually working on doing exactly that. Uh, we're supported by uh, BlackRock Bank is, is funding us to make lists for uh, all of Europe, all of Eurasia actually pretty much the whole world. And we're, we're well along in that so that I can go to Germany and say, hey, here are the best plants you got to focus on. 
I can go to Brazil. I can go to uh, Singapore. You have you have scholars that you're collaborating with in those countries, or uh, well, you know, these are host records that are in the literature. I see. So it's 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 massive literature searches, and uh, the you know I've got my my research technician Kimberly Shropshire who put together the original list. She's good at it at this point. Um, it is a big job. There are 180,000 species of, of uh, caterpillars in the world. <laughs> so, goodness, goodness. Uh, so not only do we need the list of what they eat, we need their uh, geographic range. We're not going to do it by uh, by county or by by political uh, delineation anymore. We're doing it by ecoregion. So if you know what ecoregion you live in, because that, that makes a lot more sense, um, you can figure out what are the best plants for your ecoregion. So that's a big project that we're working on. Another one is, is uh, I've got a new uh, master's student looking at how we should landscape under our trees. So I, we say oaks are great. They're going to make a lot of caterpillars and the birds need them. Well, those caterpillars, only a few of them complete their development on the tree. The rest of them drop from the tree after they finish growing and try to wiggle beneath the ground to pupate, or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that's under the tree. And the way we typically landscape, there is no leaf litter under the tree, and we mow and compact the soil under the tree so it's rock hard and the caterpillars can't get underground. So how do we change those landscapes in a way that will favor caterpillar survivorship? And there's a whole bunch of things we don't know, uh, which we need to know in order to answer that question. And that's that's what her, her thesis is about. That's fascinating. You know, we have a fellow here at Austin P. Um, Dwayne Estes. I don't know if you are, or if you know Dwayne, but he has the the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. Oh yeah, I've heard. I've, yes, I and, don't know him, but I've heard of that. Well, yeah. you know, this is an inspirational fellow, and um, one of the th one of the things that he's doing is he's going back to to um, to literature, not necessarily scientific literature, but. Uh, the tales and stories of of our of the of the people that came upon the land first and what did they observe, mm -hmm. um, and of course, met much of the southeast was was grasslands, uh, many many thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres was grasslands, with the but that doesn't mean there were no trees there. Mm -hmm. uh, you you ha would have the lone oaks and the and the scrub scrub oaks and the, those mm -hmm. sorts of trees that that are out there in the landscape basically savanna type exactly. uh, ecosystems. And, and I, I wonder uh, if, if that's, and I, I wonder if that's part of the solution to what you just mentioned is understanding what the, what the natural uh, ecosystem is in your little neighborhood where that's now, that's now many hundreds of years past that or dozens of decades past that. Yeah, we are recognizing that savanna landscapes are extremely productive. They were much more common than we think. Um, and that goes way back. The large Pleistocene mammals kept it much more open. They ate a lot of those trees and kept it open. Um, and picture a typical neighborhood. We've got some a few big trees here and there and everything else is long, but it could be, it could be a savanna landscape. And yes, there's a house there, but, but to an animal, a house is just like a big rock. It doesn't right. destroy the, right. the, the uh, landscape. What destroys the landscape is not having the plants that, that produce the energy that you need. So, so it's a model for a suburban type landscape that I think we can pursue very productively. And that gets into a whole different topic about what are the appropriate grasses to, 
you know, in that savanna type landscape. And Forbes, so, and Forbes. And, These and Forbes, were, right. they weren't just grasslands. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Well, Doug, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to to be with me and and to talk with me and, and our audience about what you're doing. Uh, I'm inspired and I encourage people to, to uh, get out and get, your, get the books that you've written. Uh, I know that they're in every library. Uh, and uh, uh, I, have, I have read them mostly. I find them to be extraordinarily well-written in conversational sort of easy, relaxing style. You're the narrator in them. Uh, and the voice that you're that you're uh, evidencing here today, it's uh, they're, they're so easily read and and um, uh, and accessible to the. They're not they're not written in scientific, uh, cryptic scientific uh, language, and and that's uh, a benefit. So, anyway, thank you so much for your time today. I've enjoyed uh, this time together. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it.